0: Thus the heavens and the earth, and all of the host of them, were finished. Now that's important, that word finished there, when we look at that. There's, there's no progressive creation here. We don't see any microevolution or macroevolution. We don't see anything. I mean, literally, when you think of the entire concept of what it means when it says finished, think of angelic beings. That means that all the angels in creation, at this point, by day seven, right? Six days it was created, by day seven... Everything has been created. The angelic beings are created that way. Animals. The animal kingdom has been created. Everything has been created. We read about that. Plant life created. Humanity. You and I. We're going to spend the rest of time in Genesis chapter 2 going through. We know in verses Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we know that he said what? He created us in his image and likeness. So Is chapter 2 going to contradict that? Is there something that's going to be different? Are we getting two different creation accounts? As Paul would say, certainly not, right? Certainly not. What we're getting is the detail. When we move into chapter 2, we begin to move into the detail of the creation account regarding humanity and the breath of life. We sang about it tonight, the breath of life, right? That God breathed life into us. No other creation or creature, should I say, in creation had the the breath of God breathed into them that way. It's very unique, very interesting. So as we go through this, it's important that, again, nothing to do with evolution. Everything created and was designed with purpose, and it came together, and it was unfolded as the Lord unfolded it. And it was finished. There's no gap theory. There's nothing else we need to try to artificially insert here. God's taking care of it all. When he says it's finished, it's finished. He's not grammatically challenged. Our Lord doesn't struggle with the Hebrew. He doesn't struggle with Greek. He certainly doesn't struggle with English. As we look at verse 2, And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, you might be thinking, does God need rest? We're talking about the God of everything, the God of the universe, the God that's outside of creation. Remember when we were in chapter 1 and we were talking about creation? The very fact that God would design the earth and the heavens, plural, because we know there's the firmament, the atmosphere, right? And then we know there's the third heaven Paul talked about, where that's the throne room of God. Does God actually need rest that way? Of course not. He's God. He spoke it into existence. By the mere word, it became. It was so. As As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, that's the exact if I could say language he used, he would say, it was so. He said, look back to verse 7 there, chapter 1, verse 7. He says, then God made the firmament and divided the waters, and, it were, you know, and the waters were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. He spoke it into existence. There was nothing else to be, so clearly, God doesn't need rest that way. So, it looks like there's something else God's trying to communicate here to us. The Holy Spirit's trying to communicate. What, what's he showing us here? Well, I believe here, one, it is a, I believe, believe, if I could say it in duplicity without sounding, uh, without putting it in two different ways, without being duplicative, I don't know how to say it, in verse 1, clearly showing us there's a finality and then there was a rest. But then the other thing he's showing us is a methodology. You might say, Pastor, what do you mean a methodology? Well, as we break this down and we, we exegete this, I think it'll come, become very clear, because as we go in verse 2 here, he begins to tell us what? He talks about a week. Seventh days. Men, women, we understand a, a six-day work week with a day of rest, right? Many of us think of a five-day work week because Monday through Friday, that's what we work today, right? And then many of us say, well, Saturday, do you not work? Most of us, do we not go home and work at home and still do work? And then on Sunday, we go, we come to church, then a lot of times we'll go be with family, we might have a family dinner. And we, what do we do? We rest. We try to rest. So I think it's a good methodology here. For six days we're to work, and the seventh day of rest. And I think it's also interesting that when you think about it, work is programmed, if I could say it that way, or permanently ingrained into a man. Very few men wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to do this work thing anymore. Like it's not for me. Like I I don't hear many people, women included in that, saying, you know, this whole work thing. You know, being a mother, raising children, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it's not something that's uttered often, right? We're created. It's ingrained in us to work. Now, remember, this is pre-curse. So those that come back and say, well, you know, the reason we labor is because of the curse. Oh, no. That's not what we see here, and that would be poor hermeneutics, wouldn't it? Because we're in chapter 2. Chapter 3 moves into the curse. This is before the temptation yet. Work is a good thing. What happened to David? Remember David? King David? when he went up and he was relaxing and taking a break. He was supposed to go into war, and he didn't. And what did he do? He went up to a rooftop, and he began to lust after a woman, which led into tremendous sin. Because he didn't do what? He didn't go work. He didn't do what he was created to do, to work, to to labor. Now, part of the curse, we understand that we'll toil, men. We'll toil in the land. There's a difference between toiling... That means that we'll work the land, but it will not produce the fruit that we would expect. That's why we always say to God is the increase, because it all comes from God's blessing. God's the one that blesses us. While we use our hands the best we can, God is the one that blesses us. Now, this idea, though, like anything else, has been attacked. You might be saying, what do you mean? A work week's been attacked? Absolutely. Just like every other part of God's design, when you take it literally, the enemy wants to attack it. And so what are some of the ways? Well, if you're taking notes, back in 1793, there was a leader of the French Revolution. And what he did is he tried to introduce this idea of a 10-day work week. And it was supposed to be 10 working days, and then you'd get off for 10 days. That was this concept of what this leader in the French Revolution tried to invent. Again, tacking the idea that what do we need? God told us six days of work and a day of rest. We need rest, don't we? We need time where we can step back and, 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 you know, be with the Lord like that. Be with our families and, and just rest in Him. I mean, isn't that the, when you think about the parousia and the, and the coming of what we look for, isn't it a day of rest that we hope in Jesus Christ? As Christians, where does our rest come from? From the presence of God. From the indwelling of His Spirit inside of us. Jesus Christ, that's our rest. And so it's no... You know, it's no surprise that we see that. In 1929, the Soviet Union went through and tried to c- declare a five-day work week with a rest on a sixth day. And then they would repeat that. So in a, and then in a given year, you would end up working more than obviously six days. You would, you would end up working, because the way they did it, they'd skip a day and then they'd start the whole thing over again. And in 1936, the League of Nations tried something similar. But no one has ever throughout all of history been able to move away from six little days of work and one day of rest i think it's interesting because this is god's design and no one is going to change god's design that way he's the creator does the hammer come back and say well i really would like to be a pair of pliers not so much the hammer was created to be a hammer it has a job to do god tells us and we're going to read it tonight where to work where to what we were to tend the garden originally Now he has work for us to do here. He gave us a commission, didn't he, Christian? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, what's our commission? To go forth, to baptize, to give the good news, the gospel, right? Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That's interesting. He sanctified it. He made it holy. He set it apart. That's what that means. It's because because in it he rested from all his works, Work which God had created and made. You see, I believe that He gave us the seventh day as a blessing. He blessed it, He sanctified it. Again, God didn't need rest. He did it for you and I so that we would understand that six days were to work, but the seventh day were to make it holy, set apart, were to rest in it. Now, we don't have to be legalistic about it, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but clearly God's telling us we need rest. And I know there's no coincidence tonight. I know there's a lot of folks in here going through a lot of trials and tribulations. And when I'm talking to you, I'm saying, how are you doing? And most people are saying, I'm just tired. And we're living in this world, and I don't think there's any coincidence. As I've said before, when 1960s, when they took the Bible out of school, when they took prayer out of school... And they took God's word, God's holy word, our instruction manual. We have a biblically illiterate generation today. They're growing up. They don't know what God's instruction is. They don't understand how to live their lives. They're like the book of Judges. They're doing. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what we see in the world today, don't we, Christian? And, and, and yet we see people working themselves, running themselves into the ground. Anxiety, depression, all these things. People are juggling You know, they're juggling trying to keep everything afloat. How are we, who's gonna watch the kids? How's this all gonna work? How are we gonna make the rent payment this month? How are we gonna make the mortgage? And everybody's juggling. But nobody stopped to step back and say, is it the Lord's will? Are we striving? Are we doing things in vanity? You know, God said we need to rest. There needs to be a time of work, but there also needs to be a day of rest. And when we're resting, we need to be in Christ. We need to be in Jesus. We need to be in our Word. Every day we need to be in our Word. But on that day of rest, how much more when we can just pour over everything He has? He speaks. Does He speak volumes to you when, you? when you go to the Word of God and you're saying, Lord, I need help. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. God, I don't know how I was going to get from my last you know, trial of faith. I don't know how I'm going to get through this one. And you sort of take that pause and you just enter into the fullness of His presence. You open your Bible and coincidentally, you just end up at a verse, right? We know there's no coincidence. And you end up at this passage and you're reading it. And you've read that passage a hundred times, haven't you? And this time, there's something different about it. God begins to minister to you. And what do you do? Like most of us, we take this big, deep breath. This breath, this exhale. And for a moment, we take our eyes off our problem. And we fix them back on Jesus where they belong. And he ministers to us. You see, that's what God has always intended for us. Again, we were created in the garden. We're reading the story of creation. At one time, Adam was in the presence of Christ. We talked about it in our Christmas Eve service. We were created for fellowship, agape love. We were walking and talking with the Lord. Moses wanted to enter into the presence, Lord. It wasn't enough to go to the burning bush, but he wanted what? He wanted to see his face. He said, we were created for familial relationships. And our rest comes from Jesus Christ alone. We're not going to get it by working and taking our minds or trying to find things to distract us and take our minds off our problems. You know what I'm talking about. That's what the world will tell you. Oh, you go, go do this, go do that. Try to distract yourself. No. Jesus, slow down. Look to me, look to the Lord. It's important. He rested and he made it holy and set apart. See, the Sabbath is a is a shadow of what's available to you and I in Jesus Christ. You know, there should be a bumper sticker made that, you know, striving not allowed. You know, because isn't that the 21st, you know, the culture of the 21st century? It's all about striving. You know what I'm talking about. Think about people, you know, think about the jobs where you're working. It's all striving. Go, go, go. And people don't even stop and ask, Lord, is this where you want me to go? If I'm about to move, is this what you want me to do? Are you calling me to move, Lord? Are you opening the doors? Are you showing me? Am I being faithful and obedient? Because I'm not going to move. I'm not going to do a single thing, Lord, until you tell me. You say, go, Lord, I'll go. You say, stay, Lord, I'll stay. I want to be right in your perfect will. You know, we're not required to observe the Sabbath today. You know, yes, we're in Christ, but we don't need to be legalistic about it. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, please, in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2. I'm not trying to trip anybody up here as we go through this. Nor is the Lord trying to trip us up and, 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 you know, browbeat us about this idea of rest. I know everybody's busy. I understand you all... You know, multiple jobs. I get it. You know, we need, to, we need to work. We need to do all these things. But if we don't take time out to rest, we're missing the very best God has for us. It was part of his design. There's a reason he said rest on the seventh day. We're missing it. And we're a go, 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 go society. Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that itself just an enormous amount of peace? I mean, he's done it all. He's done it all like that. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Do you realize that? He has disarmed the principalities and powers. We have victory in Jesus Christ. like that. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Shabbat or Sabbath. Do you see that? Which are what? Are the shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. Do you see why I said that the Sabbath was a shadow unto Christ, that it was, it was a fourth shadow of what would be in Jesus Christ, the peace would be received from Him, that no longer under legalism would we have to necessarily observe that day, but when we're in Christ we would receive that peace as though, it just as it is, holy and set apart. I like that. You can turn back to Genesis. So what did we learn here? Those in Christ are Forgiven. And they're judged by Jesus alone. We don't need to judge one another that way. We're fruit inspectors, right? Jesus warned us already about judging. He says, don't judge the matters of the heart. You and I aren't qualified to do that. We are to be fruit inspectors. He did tell us we can look at the fruit and we can inspect it. But we're certainly not to judge because can you and I judge right or correctly? We perceive one thing. Yet God sees the entire movie. I've said it often like this. If I showed you a trailer, clips, and you were watching the clips, do you perceive the entire movie? Do you know what it's all going to be about? And the details? No. But God is all-knowing. He sees everything. And it it truly is a matter of perspective. Because as we're going through these things in life, as, as he's bringing us into this rest, it's always been about perspective. It's always been about His will. Seeing things, we see it in Ephesians chapter six, verse eleven through seventeen. Put on the what? The helmet of salvation. What is that talking about? Our mind, looking to Christ with His mind's eye, with a biblical worldview, seeing the world as Christ saw the world, not with our lens, but with God's lens. It's perspective. Because if we have that perspective and we're going through trials and tribulations and we're going through these things, to us they seem overwhelming. They seem like, Lord, there's no way out. First of all, he's always told us he provides a way out of every trial. He promised that. But the second thing that we can learn through this is, is what? Is that if we trust God... If we, I mean, this is the God that created the heavens and the earth in six days and all everything we understand, all matter, all black matter, again, we understand less than 94 to 95% of everything we see around us. Because the only thing we understand is the 4 or 5% of matter that exists before us today. The rest of it's 95%. We don't understand it. We don't know what it is. But yet somehow our scientists will tell you, oh, it's, it's different. It's this, It's that. It's a big bang theory. It's just, it's just all supernaturally. You know, I mean, not supernatural. excuse me. It all just happened. It just, just exploded, you know. I wish that would happen with dinner at the house. I'd walk through. I could, I could take some ingredients. I could put them in a bowl. And then I'd walk into the other room. I'd come back in. Oh, a souffle. Perfectly baked. I'm glad it didn't flatten. No. It's intelligent. God's given us intelligence here. That's faith to believe that stuff. That's faith. So as we just read, Christians are under no obligation to to observe the Sabbath that way when we're we're in Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. This is the promise of rest for you and I. God so desires us to have this Christian, do you know that? He desires you and I to rest in him. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come, what? Short of it. See, there's a possibility that you can come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. They didn't believe. They didn't live it out. They weren't doers of the word. They were hearers only. Not being mixed with, what? Faith in those who heard it. Where was the faith? For we who have believed do not enter that rest, as he said. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Those without faith cannot enter that. I should have said do enter, not do not. I should have said do enter, excuse me although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. It brings us right back to the creation. God has already prepared a way. He's already designed rest for us. It was in the Shabbat. It was part of His grand design of six days of works and what, seventh day rest. For He has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested the seventh day from all His works. And again, in this place, they shall not or they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached do not enter because of... Right there's the answer. What's the answer, Christian? Disobedience. What's that mean? Again, Jesus Christ isn't laying a trip on anybody here. He's not trying to be legalistic. What's he saying? He's saying by faith. How do we believe in Christ? Is it by works or by faith? By faith. When we enter into Christ and we believe on Him, it's by faith that we enter into His rights because we realize that we have surrendered. We let go. We're not trying to control it. We're not trying to... (laughs) You know, I think of Jacob arguing uh, and wrestling with God for His blessing. Oh yeah, he did, but what did he walk away with? A dislocated hip, didn't he? You see, God has a perfect plan for you and I. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, and his son alone, and and the rest is within him. But, But if we, in our strength, if we strive, if we're doing all these, we're never going to enter into that rest, even though it was preached to us. Tonight, each one of you are hearing about the promise of rest of Jesus Christ. But if you choose not to believe, or you say, well, that's great, God. You might have meant that for some people, but you didn't mean it for me. No. No. Now, we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. Many of us would believe Paul wrote Hebrews. But if Paul did write this, is that what he's saying? No, he's saying it's in disobedience. Your your, your lack of faith. You don't believe. You're not living it out. Do you know what that's like? That's like one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It's a juxtaposition. You're balancing both. You're trying to be both. You're like a reed shaken in the wind. What do you do? Think about it. Put one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. What is the balance? You see your body naturally does this. Because you're trying to be in both. What is that? What movement am I making? A reed shaken in the wind. Exactly what John the Baptist, the forerunner before Jesus Christ said to what? To religious leaders of your day. Remember? He said you brought a vipers. What are you coming out here for? You're so busy with the religious leaders and the law that you've missed the personal relationship with God. You've missed Jesus Christ because you missed mercy and grace. You were so worried about straining a gnat that you didn't realize it was about love, mercy, and grace. And you didn't even enter into the presence of God. you never entered into his rest. The way you were, you know, basically riding these people to do all these things, to keep all these 600 and such and such laws, ceremonial laws, you never once instructed them into the rest of God. Sure, they may have observed the Shabbat on Saturday, but they were never in rest because they were afraid to go out or couldn't they do this or couldn't they do that? They couldn't get in a vehicle. Well, they didn't have vehicles then. They couldn't travel out of their house at a certain time, right? You get what I'm talking about. You know, there's some in, in certain areas, and I know New York, You, you know, I, many of you know I came from New York. and You know, I remember when I was downstate in New York, near New York City area, there's a, right in the Rockland County area, um, area, there's a big Hasidic Jew population there. And I can remember driving home from work, um, even sometimes on Saturday I have to go in, and I could see, you know, they would they, there would be Hasidic Jews there that would be Orthodox Jews that way that literally would be standing on the side of the road waiting for their a ride home because they, they couldn't get in and operate a vehicle. I mean, that is nowhere in the Word of God. God was very strict in Revelation. He says, it's it's an a curse to add or take away from his word. You see, when you do that to the people, the, the, these, these Jews, these men, were trying to get home to their families. And instead of entering into the peace of God, they're sitting on the side of a highway trying to find a way home to be with their loved ones. Does that seem loving? It's hard to have an appreciation for a God of love that way when you're trying to keep some orthodox law. That's why Paul told us in Galatians, don't go back under the law. The law is not gonna free you, the law is not gonna help you that way. Hmm. Verse seven, and he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, and after such a long time has been, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, do you see this? The very thing I'm speaking to you about? The Lord's going, then he would not have afterwards have spoken to another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. It's not about striving. For he who has entered into, what? His rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So when we go back to Genesis, turn back to Genesis here, what are we to learn from this? This is a methodology for you and I. Do you see that? He's warned us. It's a methodology. It's saying, look, we need to take that rest. That's where the obedience needs to come in. That's obedience. God says, I desire mercy and obedience over sacrifice, he said. You want sacrifice at all? law? That's great. But he says, I desire mercy and obedience. It frees us from this legal obligation. But we understand it's an example of God's rest. His finished work on the cross. You don't want to propose to put Jesus back on the cross, do you? Of course not. So why wouldn't we enter the rest that He's given us? And that's available for you and I today. It doesn't. We don't have to wait to the Shabbat. That's the point. Any one of us, wherever we are right now, can enter into the presence of Christ that way and receive His peace. Philippians 4.6, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And His rest... But it requires faith, it requires us to believe what he said and to follow through on it, to believe on him that way. Now, I think it's interesting in our modern world today, 2,000 some years later, we have a five day work week, right? We have generous vacation time, most of us at our jobs, our employers give us this. So surely we have more leisure time, right? We got more leisure time, right? I mean, in all times throughout history with the work week and the way we have a five-day work week now, certainly we must have all this leisure time. I mean, after all, we went through an industrial revolution. In the last 50 years, 40 years, you could argue, we went through a technological revolution. Certainly we must have more time. We must have more leisure time because this is why we did all those things. This is why computers and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all these people invented. Every PC in every home, you're going to have a computer, so what? So you could be more efficient and you could do all these other things. The family's under attack. Divorce rates are high. Suicide suicide rates are high. Anxiety, depression rates are high. Why? Because nobody's taking the promise of rest. They're working and working, going and going and striving. Chasing some artificial dream that they call an American dream. Principalities and powers. You know what America's principality and powers are? Mammon. There's a demon, there's an evil presence of mammon in this country. Greed. Never satisfied with what God has given us. Always wanting more. Never content with where he's placed us and, and realizing that that's where we're to serve and that's where we're to be at is, you know, about our father's business. But always looking for more. It's, it's inbred into our culture. You could even say it's innate that way. I mean, we wake up, we think about, you know, when we watched The Bema Seat. Remember the movie The Bema Seat we had? Some of you joined us. The guy woke up in the morning. He was very deliberate. He knew he was going into the office and what was he going to do? Today was the day he was going to become a partner, an executive vice president, and everything was going to change. How many movies have we watched in Hollywood where they've had a movie and the plot was all about the husband working harder, this is the one, and if he can do this creation or invention or something's going to change, then he'll have more time with the the family that way. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Do you get that, Christian? That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a distraction. The devil is very clever that way. He distracted Eve and and confused her. Adam wasn't there as the pastor of his home. He was missing on the scene when Eve was deceived that way. But nobody talks about that anymore. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about, should we be as busy as we are? Are we better for it? Are we being obedient to what God said we needed? Rest. In Him. You know, with all this extra leisure time we should have because of this technological revolution or industrial revolution, you would think it would give us more time to serve God. And our churches would be full, and we'd have all the, all the people that would be so willing and able to serve. And yet most of our churches are struggling for people to serve and help. And yet there's all this leisure time. No. Do you think that's a coincidence? Most of you come in here on Wednesday nights. You guys are tired. Our worship is sort of nice because it's meant to enter us into the presence of God. It's not a rock and roll concert, man. You don't need to get emotionally jazzed up. You want to enter into the presence of Jesus. Because you know that's what's going to get you through the rest of the week, isn't it? It's only God. It's Him. It's Him. It's not some guy standing up here. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ. And he meets with you all. He encourages you, equips you, and he gives you that rest. And you walk out of here going, okay, Lord, I got a few more days in me. And then Sunday comes around and, Lord, I need my filling again. And there's no coincidence this where he attacks. Verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. If you're taking notes, Circle history there. That's very, very important in the Hebrew with that connotes. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It almost seems redundant. The Lord keeps mentioning over and over again, I created, it's finished, this is the history. You think it's important to the Lord? You think he's trying to communicate something to us? That it's completed? That it was completed there? I mean, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 isn't, again, just a repetition What's this idea about history? You see, what this is communicating in the Hebrew is this is a first-hand testimonial. God himself is giving you and I a first-hand testimonial. He says, this is a historical account. He's giving us an account here. That's why I get so upset, and I'm sure some of you do too, when people will come and they will try to reinterpret Genesis. And they'll say, oh, there was millions of years. You can believe that, and I can believe thousands of years, Can't we just get along that way? Well, where do you stop? When you misinterpret Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, when do you stop misinterpreting the Bible? I mean, when do you draw the line then? You see, we all have to answer this question. We're handling the word of God. He says, this is a historical account. I certainly don't want to call God a liar. God used Yom. He said it was six 24-hour literal days. He said there's a seventh day of rest. And God is saying, this is my historical account. Now, maybe some of you are more brazen, foolishly bold, than me. Because I certainly am not going to challenge God or the Holy Spirit. He sealed this. This is what he said. This is my historical account. It's not up for reinterpretation. It's not up for gap theory suggestions. It's a literal line-by-line understanding of what he did. He's signing it for us. Don't you see that here? So when, I, when I've talked to people that, oh, I believe in millions of years, oh, I believe in progressive microevolution, I bring them back here and I say, but why? God signed it right here. He said, this is a historical account. This is history. This is what happened. He told us that. And they usually look at me and go, I, I honestly never noticed that. I said, let, let, let's look over that word in Hebrew. Let's see what it connotes. You know, I, Pastor, I never, I never, yeah. Again, God's not grammatically challenged because he wants us to have faith. He wants us to know his yes is yes and his no is no. And we don't have to wonder. We have a great God that loves us. He doesn't want us wandering aimlessly, wondering, what, Lord, do you did you really mean it? Are you really going to resurrect me from the dead as you did your son, Jesus Christ, if I place my faith and trust in him? God is right one 100% of the time. 100% of the time. You see, I would, I would go so far to say that it's blasphemous, heretical. I'll use terms like that. Profane. To take God's word and change it. But again, you're not going to walk into many churches where they're going to they're draw the line that way. You're going to come in and you're going to get a feel-good message. Your ears are going to be dripping with Honey. You're going to walk out. Yeah, things are good. Well, things are good, but they're good because we have Jesus Christ. They're good because God's given us an instruction manual. They're good because God didn't tell us to compromise. He told us to walk in the fullness of his truth and the fullness of his grace. That's why they're good. Because they're not relying on us. It's what he's already done on the cross. 100% of the time. I love it. And then he says, you know, this ends the genealogy here, if you think about it, of the heavens and earth. A history given by God to Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. Remember, this is God's word. This is beyond contestation. No one has the right to come and reinterpret this or or say something, you know, well, no, I don't don't agree. I I think God really meant, no. It's a history account. he's, He's signed it. You, you want to argue? Argue with the Lord. I'm, I'm simply here to draw you back to Jesus Christ. No human being was present there. Something called in science, observational science. How many of you are familiar with that term, observational science? It means you were there to physically see the science as it unfolded. Therefore, you can interpret or understand the results of the data. Maybe it's a mixed methodology. Maybe you're doing, you know, a quantitative or qualitative study, and you're you're doing a mixed methodology like that, and you observe the understanding and how it unfolds, and you report on that. So I have to ask a question. Was, Was there another human alive that could report on this to say, well, that's not how it went down. There was this big bang, and all these things happened, and it was just a souffle. No. I mean, we laugh, but no, there was nobody alive. Other than who? Mm. Jesus Christ God, who was, by the way, outside of his creation. That's why when I was teaching in the beginning, I to—I was very clear in pointing out, he didn't evolve in his creation. He was outside of his creation. Why? Because he could observe it from an observational science perspective. As he was creating, he's observing, he's seeing it. It's his historical account. It's his historical account. It's very important. In the day that the Lord God made the earth, right? He says, and the heavens. If you're taking notes, underline this in your Bible. This is the first place in scripture that we get the word Lord, Yahweh, right? We know the first in line, verse one, chapter one there of Genesis, we got God and that was Elohim, plural, representing what? One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But here's the first place we get the word Lord, Yahweh in the Bible. You know where the word Lord comes, lowercase, well, uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D? It's interesting. It actually comes from an Anglo-Saxon word. It was used to describe bread or a loaf, a loaf of bread. Historically, English men of high stature would have a place within their home or residence that they would keep open, that anyone who was in need could come in and help themselves to some bread if they had been traveling or they, they needed to eat. And so they were given an honorable title. And you know what that title was? Lord, Lords. Now clearly this is not the title for Lord or Yahweh. This is God. But it's important that we talk about the difference because you will see in the Bible, we, some call me Lord, Lord, but I do not know you, right? He's not talking about God, God. He's talking about you. you're calling me, a Lord, someone of esteem. But you're not calling me the God who you've surrendered your life to and you're all in. It means dispenser of bread. That's what it meant. Verse 5, Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any hurt, herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. So we already see work needed. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So again, going back to the history, it doesn't contradict in any way here, back to Genesis 1.1, we see vegetation. We know that vegetation came after the earth was created, and we know that at this point there was only this time of space, and we had this watery globe where we know there was a sphere and somehow we broke it up in the firmament where he divided, you know, one half from the other, which we know eventually would be used for what? For a flood. Because we needed enough water to be able to w- cover the entire, you might say, bigger than the earth, obviously, because it had to cover the earth to a certain depth that would flood everything. It wasn't a regional flood. This wasn't like, hey, let's flood Harrisburg. This was the whole world a whole world flood here. This is what we see. So we needed a great body of water. And in the very beginning, we saw that separation. It says, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on earth. So wait a minute. How can you have vegetation without rain? Well, we talked about this because that didn't, you remember, that didn't happen to the third day of creation, Genesis 1, 11 through 13. And remember, man wasn't even created yet to care for the vegetation. Who sustained all life? God. Jesus Christ. What did he use? Do you remember that water that I was just talking about that he separated? And some of the water came down that would eventually be used for our seas and ocean? But there was also water that was in the firmament, right? The atmosphere. The first heaven, as we would call it. Our atmosphere. And when he, what did he do? Think about the vapor blanket that that created. He didn't need to use evapotranspiration as an example, which is the cyclical idea of water coming down and coming back up, similar to kind of rain. What did he use? He used condensation, evaporation, and condensation. What's that form? Come on, my scientists in here. What's that form? Dew. And whenever see leaves drip with dew. You ever seen that, a leaf where you're in a high, anybody going in the jungle? I know Dave and I went to Central America on a missions trip. We went into the jungle. You could go in. That humidity was so saturated in there. Man, you felt like you were taking a shower all the time. I mean, you literally just constantly felt wet, dripping wet. You'd change your socks often. You changed, anyway, so you, you changed often, right? But it was dew. It was this heavy dew. That was God's design initially for how he took care of the vegetation. This through evaporation. Because there was this heaviness of dew. It was on the grass, on the thing. And remember, it was mature grass. It wasn't a seedling. So we already solved the chicken or the egg problem. What came first? More than likely, the chicken. It was a mature Adam. We didn't see a baby Adam. We saw a mature Adam. All these things people wonder. Philosophers gather together and they sit in pubs and try to figure it out. Go to the Bible. We'll save you you know, $120,000 and a degree and we'll save you a liver, and yet turn right to the book of Genesis. God's laid it out for us perfectly. We joke, but it's, if we just were students of the Bible, he created a ground fog here. So verse seven, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the what? Breath of life. We just sang about it today. We worshiped. And we said, Lord, let your breath fill our lungs do you realize there's no other creature throughout all of scripture that had received the breath of life from the very mouth of God do you realize how unique and special we are very unique and special that way this idea this breath of life hmm and man became a living being We need to take this apart. There's a lot here. It's interesting to me that God created man out of one of the most most basic elements of dust, the dust of the ground that way. When the Bible speaks of dust, it means usually a basic or simple origin associated with some type of lowliness or humility, right? Right? Doesn't have an evil context that way. There's nothing evil in there. And if you want to see scripture on that, look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 27. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 2. All give that description. I'll give that description. All speak to humanity being created from dust. And again, as I said in the Bible, dust isn't evil. You know, some have tried to say, well, there's no but it's also not nothing. That's important. Remember, bara, in the Hebrew, created out of nothing. God created that dust out of nothing. But the dust itself isn't nothing, it's something. Right? If you took it apart, if you looked at it, if you did a chemical composition or you broke it, it's something. There's something to that dust. God made it out of nothing. It's so the joke I've told you before when the scientist gets together and, you know, he's sitting there with God and he says, hey, let's have a, let's have a bake-off here. Let's see, you know, I don't think you are needed anymore. And, you know, to fast forward through the, the story, he says, okay, well, fine. God says, let's do it. Scientists come in and says, all right, well, I'm going to start here and I'm going to build this. And he builds this beautiful sculpture of sand. Oh, wow, that's great. And um, God turns and looks at him and says, but get your own dust. Get your own sand. You see, created out of nothing. This isn't a Lego where he's taking something that's already created and recreating out of it. See, man can take genetics and he can manipulate those. Should he? Should he be manipulating God's design? You need to be Bereans and search out the Scripture on that. It's between you and the Lord. But You know, I've often thought, we just celebrated Christmas, the birth of Christ, and you think about how humble Jesus was when he came. A king of kings, Lord of lords. And he came, and where was he? In a creche, lying in a a major type area. In a what? In a trough. I'm sure filled with a lot of dust. You know, maybe he came in such humility and lowliness so that he could be identified with his creation because after all, we were lowly and humble coming from the very dust that God created. Now, I don't know, be Bereans and search that, but it's interesting. He wanted to be identified with us. And he breathed into the nostrils, that's what it says here, the breath of life, and man became a living being. So with this divine breath, man became something <clears throat> unique. He became alive in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 and 127. The word for breath here, we're going to say it together. Neshmah. Say it with me. Neshmah. If you say it right, and I don't always pronounce it right in the Hebrew, what's it sound like? Neshma. Almost like you're taking a breath, doesn't it? Neshma. It's got the sound of breath. In the very Hebrew, the word, when you say it and you listen to somebody say it, it sounds like they're taking a breath. Isn't that interesting? That must just be a coincidence, the way God did that. But it imitates the very sound. God putting his breath in you and I, in our lives. You see, this implication, I think by a Hebrew leader would, uh, reader excuse me, would be quite obvious, if I could say it that way. God's brings some of his own breath into you and I. That's why we're in the likeness and image of him. He didn't do this with the plants and the animals. Therefore, those that want to save the whales and save the kittens and all the other things, hey, look, that's great, man. But yet we, mil- we murder 54 million babies a year. I think, isn't that what the abortion count is? It's some ridiculous number like that. And again, I'm not trying to, look, if, if, if you are here and you've had an abortion, and you're walking in, in Christ. You've been forgiven. Far, the east as far as from the west. Sin has been forgiven. You're a new creation. You have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But there are people today as you know that stand up and say, well, it's all right. We need to save a whale. But it's okay to kill a baby. The Lord told us in the end times they will call evil good and good evil they will turn things upside down. Christian, we are in the end times. There's no doubt about it. We are in the end times. Hmm. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put a man whom he had formed. So... We see these trees in this garden, and we know that he planted other trees within the garden. And it was eastward of Eden. And I think it's interesting that this was the garden that Adam, that was he was put into, to what, for fellowship, perfect habitation, created it perfectly for Adam, and later Eve. And there he put the man he had formed. You see, the details that we get from Genesis 1 don't go through and talk to us about the intimacy that God gives us in Genesis 2. The intimacy of knowing that he put us in a perfect habitat like this garden that he had designed for all humanity, for what? For fellowship, to be able to walk with us and talk with us and hold our hand. That's why when we know when Adam falls into sin, he comes into the garden and goes, where are you? He knew where he was. It was really better yet, why are you hiding? Why are you hiding from me? If it wasn't shocking to God, and I don't mean shocking as in he wasn't aware of it, I mean shocking as in appalling to God that he was hiding, then why would God have called it out? He would have said, oh, Adam, you're playing hide-and-seek again. No, he doesn't. He's surprised. Why are you hiding? What are you ashamed of? Why, why are you wearing that? We'll cover it when we get there, but, but isn't it Interesting. You see, I believe we had such an intimate relationship with God like that. We walked with him. We talked with him. It says, out of, every, out of the ground, God made every tree grow. Now, it's, again, it's not a contradictory account. I've heard others try to come and say, oh, see, Genesis 1 is contradicting Genesis chapter 2. That's not what this is saying. It's giving us further detail here. I believe this is the detail from Adam's perspective. I think this is what Adam perceived as his his experience. As he was given life and life was breathed into him, here he is in this garden. He's looking around and going, this is amazing, man. I love it. And look at these trees. But I did remember God, Elohim, told me, don't eat of one of these trees, because surely I'm going to die. You see, he told him, he warned him. And if you want to see where and why I think he would take these two creations account, you can look in Matthew chapter 19. It's very interesting. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. You know what? Turn there quickly. I think this is important from an apologetics perspective. We we should see this. God did this for us. Jesus gave us this. This is the very words of Jesus Christ. What he's going to do here. It's amazing. I don't know if anybody's ever shared this or pointed this out. You remember when we were in the book of Matthew, I know I didn't specifically cover this piece, but it says, and he answered and said to him, right? And this is when he was talking about marriage and divorce. He says, have you not read? This was Jesus' response to, is it lawful? Can I divorce woman? He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? What is that quoting? What is that speaking of? Genesis chapter 126 and 127, right? Male and female that way. 127 specifically. Also Genesis 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 2. And then in verse 5, he goes and quotes something different. He says, and said, for this reason, a, male shall, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What part of Genesis is this from? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So, Jesus Christ himself took Genesis 1 as part of the creation account and Genesis 2 as part of the creation account and brought them together perfectly. He harmonized them, not created them separate. So anybody from an apologetic perspective that tries to come back and say, well, chapter 1 is one kind of creation account. Chapter 2 is something totally different. No. Jesus Christ harmonized this. He brought it together and said, see? And he does it in this response. He doesn't look at this as two creation accounts. It's one creation account. You remember Genesis chapter 2, 24 talks about what? Leaving and cleaving. That's for those that get married. We're to leave our fathers and mothers and we're to do what? We're to go off and cleave to our spouse. We're to have our own lives, our own, our own, our own marriage that way. We're to leave and cleave. That's God's command. Go do this. And we'll close with verse 9. If you want to turn back to Genesis, we'll close with verse 9. I guess we didn't get to verse 17 tonight. That's all right. God has us right where he wants us. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we're introduced to these two trees, right? The tree of life was to grant or sustain, if you will, eternal life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 gives us that definition. Look over to verse, chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man had become like one of us, plural, again speaking to the Trinity, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live for ever." So we see what the tree of life was. It was to sustain, right? Or, or grant eternal life. You might remember when we were in the book of Revelation, we talked about that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, when we looked at the churches. And Jesus told us that there would be in the new heavens, right? The new heavens and the new earth, there would be this tree of life again. And he had a lot to say about it. If you want to go back, go back and listen to the teachings. They're up on the website, or you can go back and or you can get a CD out here, but they're. They go through, and, and, I, and I talked about how amazing it was, because this tree of life, we're told that it's going to be used for healing. And it's not the fruit that's healing. It's interesting. What was it? Anybody remember? The leaves. Healing in the Greek, in the Revelation, trans, translated to what? In English. Better. Ministering. Ministering is what we get. That's, what, that's the Greek translation for what we get there. It's for ministering. and We're going to be those leaves somehow. Right? And then we read in Revelation chapter 22 to, as I was just mentioning these leaves, that's going to minister to all the nations and every month there's going to be a new fruit. Kind of the fruit of the month club. You know, there's going to be God's provided one for us. Fruit of the month. Every month there's going to be a new fruit and I guarantee we have never tasted anything as good as this fruit's going to taste. Amen? It's going to be amazing. But then we're also introduced to another tree here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I like to call this the tree of temptation. That's what it is. And for those of us that ask, because there are somebody here tonight, I I almost would bet on it. Lord, why would you put... Oh, yeah. See, I'm getting the laugh, so I know. Why would you put a tree of temptation in a garden like this? If you wouldn't have put the tree there, none of this would be a problem. Adam and Eve would have had children. You would have given a life. We would all be in the garden. We'd be sitting back going... Awesome, right? We'd be loving life. We'd be sitting back going, this is great. Why did you put that tree there? But I think it it speaks a lot. I think we have to look at that. What did that tree do? It would give us firsthand knowledge of good and evil, which God was the only one that presented that or understood that at that time. And you could argue Lucifer, the devil, who would be in that garden in chapter 3 that we'll read. And that speaks to Isaiah 14, if you want to look at the temptation. But I think it's important that, that that tree had to be there because it was about choice. You see, if he didn't put that tree there, you and I wouldn't have had free will, would we have? We'd have been like robots. We'd had no way to choose to not receive him, to deny him, you might say. But remember, he's in this garden. He's got all these trees, all this fruit, all this beautiful. He says, you can eat of every tree you want. So this isn't a lust of appetite. This isn't a lust of the eyes that way. Or a lust of the flesh. The lusts we read about. What's this a lust of? It's disobedience. Anybody here that has children. Nieces, nephews, grandchildren. Don't go in the other room, and if you go in there, don't touch that one thing on the table, the child comes in. What is the first thing the child goes over and touches? That one thing you said, don't touch it. As a matter of fact, the way to guarantee they're going to touch it is to do that. My mom, when she was living, used to say, don't you pick up that broom and sweep up the kitchen right now. I said, good try, mom, not going to happen. I'm, I, I don't care if I'm seven or not. I'm on to you. Too bad it doesn't work that way. But there's something interesting about it. What is this? This is a defiance. This is a disobedience. This is a heart issue. It goes to the root of what God said. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. It goes to the depravity of humanity. That even today, us walking in Christ... Do we not drag around that old man, the flesh? Paul said, for the things I do not want to do, that I do. The things I want to do, that I do not do. know, we need to be real. We need to be real about this. So, you know, we all need to know we're all struggling with this. There's nobody in here that's arrived. There's nobody in here that's going, you know what? I just don't ever have temptation. Yep, I'm so good. I am so holy that I never think about something I shouldn't right? Allow me to call you a liar first. Because there's not a single person in here. Isn't that good? I mean, I wish, it's not good that we think that way. I wish there wasn't that. But isn't it good to know that we need each other, that we need Jesus Christ, that we can be encouraged? We're not alone. Because you know what? The devil can lie to you. He can can make you think that everybody's holier than you, that everybody's doing it better than you, that, that you're failing. That is a lie from the pit of hell. He'd like nothing more than to separate you to the side because he can pick you off like a lion seeking who he can devour. But when you stay in fellowship, when you're in fellowship and you have accountability, now I know we don't like that word. I know that's foreign today in the 21st century in this, you know, 2016 going into 2017. Accountability. But it's good to be accountable one to another. It's good that we can't go under the radar. You can walk into some of these mega churches, you know, 20,000, 15,000, man, people don't even know if you're coming or going. But you walk in Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg, oh, I, uh, we know. Not because you're here, but we know because we get to know each other. You can walk in, you can look at my face, Pastor, what's wrong? I can walk in, I can see your face. What's wrong? What happened? What are you struggling with? Come on, let's talk about it. Let's pray. That's a gift from the Lord. He's given us each other. We're the body of Christ. Amen?